Good to see everyone this morning. Good morning. We may not be racing in the fun run, but we are running the race this morning as Christian brothers and sisters, so that's good. I want to start this morning. You see this picture behind me. This is the, uh, the picture of the interior of the Martyr's Shrine at Namugongo in Uganda. In 1885, the Muslim king Mwanga of Uganda ordered the arrest of three Christian page boys in attempt to stamp out Christianity, which had been brought to the country about eight years previously. The eldest of the three boys was 15, the youngest only 11. Despite threats of being burnt at the stake, they maintained their trust in Jesus, though people were weeping and their own parents were pleading with them. At the place of execution, they sent a message to the king. Tell his majesty that he has put our bodies in the fire, but we won't be long in the fire, they said. Soon we shall be with Jesus, which is much better. But ask him to repent and change his mind, or he will land in a place of eternal fire and desolation. The eldest, 15, the youngest, 11. Would you have advised three of our youth group kids to do this? Could you do it? What does a Christian need to be clear about in order to behave in such a way? Couldn't the three boys have just recanted before the king in public but kept worshipping their God in private? And what about the three men in Daniel 3, the, uh, the Bible reading that we've had read to us this morning? What are the reasons they might have given for uh, following the crowd that day. They, they might have said, when in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. They could have said, we can just pretend to bow down in our hearts, but really we're standing up. The king's been so good to us, it'd be ungrateful not to bow. We're being forced against our will to bow. God will forgive us. No one back in Jerusalem will ever know whether we bow or not. Everyone's bowing down. Or simply, if we don't, we'll be killed. As someone once said, everyone has a price. And your price is the point at which you abandon your moral standards for personal gain. And when you want to compromise, you'll always find an excuse. I don't know what the limits of your convictions are, but sometimes people are honest until a little dishonesty can save them some money. Sometimes people will know something's wrong, but for the sake of peace, will cover up the truth. Sometimes people say you must speak out against dishonesty and corruption until they have to confront their own bosses and risk losing their jobs. Sometimes people have high moral standards until their lusts are kindled by an ungodly relationship. Sometimes people say they believe the Bible, but remain in churches that don't teach the Bible. Sometimes people hold a a conviction but violate it if it goes against someone that they admire or fear. You see, our decisions and our attitudes and our behaviours are determined by one of two things, external pressure or internal principles. And it's a battle that rages constantly. And because we're so good at self-justification, it's easy to succumb to external pressure and kind of redefine it, reimagine it as an internal principle. It's a key issue for Christians. If the world ever needed people who operated on internal principle, it's, it's now. The world's weary of people who succumb to external pressure, who don't do what they say or don't do what they promise. 
And so we'll see in Daniel 3 this morning, three young men who operate on internal principles and ignore external pressure. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a lot to learn from these three men. Do we put God first? Do we put his word first? Do we act on internal principles or do we compromise as a result of external pressure? So we join the story. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego step onto a stage. It's a, it's a stage replete with pomp and ceremony and I want to suggest this morning a fair bit of mockery. The king has, has orchestrated a grand occasion. We know it's grand because anyone who's, everyone is there and, um, and they're summoned there and anyone who's there, everyone shows up. And things get underway when a herald announces the order of service, which is basically hit the deck when the music plays, or more properly when the music plays, fall down and worship. But the narrator lets the herald wax lyrical for two whole verses. You can almost hear his voice booming through the crowd. Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. And then the narrator shows the herald's directions being followed to the letter. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp and all kinds of music, dot, 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 peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this point, there's some tattletales in the crowd, so we read that, didn't we, uh, who, who observed three men left standing. And you have to wonder, if they were bowing themselves, how did they see these three men? But anyway, they seized the opportunity to ingratiate themselves to the king. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears, here we go again, the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews. What's the narrator doing? Why mention these types of government people three times? Why repeat all the musical instruments four times? You know, it's because the storyteller wants it to look silly. And it was. You know, this is mindless obedience. Don't all these people have a brain? And so slowly, one by one, as the guy next to you bends down and the one in front of you bends down and everyone's doing it, it's kind of like a wave in the cricket. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all, is not in the mind of the storyteller in Daniel 3. He fully intends to mock Nebuchadnezzar. The most repeated phrase in the chapter relates to the king and his statue, okay? the image that he set up. The two components in, in, in these repeated phrases are the king and his homemade image. And they appear like almost ten times. Look at this. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image and set up. Verse 2, the image he set up. Verse 3, the image that the king set up. Verse 5, fall down and worship the image that the king had set up. Verse 7, fell down and worship... And so it goes on. All this repetition is meant to make this king look stupid. He's a stupid king because he has a stupid image. I don't know if you um, have picked up on this before, but idolatry is a favourite image of the biblical, um, sorry, a favourite topic of the biblical authors for poking fun at others. One of the best examples of this is in Isaiah 44. 
You might have read this. It's lots of fun. He takes part of the cedar tree and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it and prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you're my god. The narrator in Daniel 3 wants you to think of this passage in Isaiah when you see this and you think how ludicrous this image that Nebuchadnezzar has manufactured is and the rest he makes into his God, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it and prays to it and says, deliver me. And you can hear Daniel 3 in that verse, making an image, fall down, worship. But the clincher is in that last phrase, the idolater says to his God, deliver me for you're my God. Now some people argue that we don't see this kind of idolatry today. Uh, you're people who, who would never think to, to bow down and worship an image like this. But I think we bow down and worship idols of a different sort. Our society is fixated with idols of a more subtle kind. I saw this article uh, recently on a website called Gospel Coalition, which if, if you are on the internet, is, is, is well worth checking out from time to time. An author in America um, wrote an article here called If Daniel 3 Were Written Today. I just want to quickly um, give you a feel for where he was going with the article. And uh, I'll try and read it with the same sort of um, emphasis as, as Daniel 3. The United States of America crafted a gold statue called Aphrodite. They stamped it in their books, discussed it in their universities and showed it on their screens. The US sent word to assemble the politicians, pastors, culture makers, critics, business people, judges and law enforcers and all the influences of the different spheres of culture to attend the dedication of the statue that society had set up. And so the politicians, the pastors, the culture makers, the critics, the business people, etc., etc., the news media and the courts loudly proclaimed, people of every state and region, you are commanded whenever you see anyone bowing down to Aphrodite, no matter where or when or how or whether or not you agree, you're to clap your hands and celebrate the gold statue the United States of America has set up. But whoever does not clap their hands and celebrate will immediately be marginalised, cast aside and silenced. He goes on to... to um, to work through Daniel 3 until finally someone accuses some Christians and the people say, is it true you don't serve our gods or celebrate the gold statue you've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you see anyone bowing down to Aphrodite, clap your hands and celebrate the statue we've created because if you don't celebrate it, you'll immediately be marginalised, cast aside and silenced. And who will be able to rescue you from our penalties and fines? Do you see what he's done? It's an idolatry of a, of a more subtle kind. Well, the king is an arrogant fool in Daniel 3, but the real bad guys in the story are the astrologers. 
when the population of Babylon fell down to worship the golden image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, it was the astrologers who peaked during prayer time and saw three lone figures standing on the plain of Jura, our three heroes, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And the narrator makes it perfectly clear what happens and why. They don't like the Jews. Verse 12. But there are some Jews who've used set up over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Now these are words that suggest the three men weren't just rebelling against a decree but against the king himself. Enraged, Nebuchadnezzar summons the men and asks them if the charges are true. Now you have to see, if it wasn't for the help of the astrologers, the king would not have had a clue that certain Jews were doing this. The towering statue, the throngs of people, the pomp of the ceremony, they were all probably enough for his big fat ego. And the threat of the furnace, and there's one over there, was enough to guarantee that no one ruined his big day. Nebuchadnezzar comes off as a hot head. He comes off as an out-of-control egomaniac in the story, but he's not a man of prejudice. He's not a man of maliciousness. He's just a fiery fool. He knows this is a question of their trusting in the God of their particular ethnic group, and so he puts the matter starkly to them. He says, if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? It's not just a challenge to the three men. The king has challenged God himself. As I say, it's a toss-up in the story, which is hotter, the king or the furnace? First, he's already ordered death by fiery furnace to anyone who doesn't bow in the crowd. But then when he learns that that non-bowers exist, he, uh, he summons them, furious with rage, it says. And then when they refuse to bow down, the king is furious again and he orders the blazing fire um, heated seven times hotter. I mean, how do you measure that? You can't measure that. You, you, You can't do that. The point is, this king is flaming mad. He's flaming mad. He's got veins popping out all over the place. He's as hot as he can possibly be and so's the fire. They're both out of control. But who's in control? Clearly, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Unfazed by the hot-headed king and his hot house, these three men, they're just relaxed. They're in control. And they're men of few words. They're quiet heroes. They just have one speech. And in the story, the king and the astrologers are chatterboxes by comparison. They're also collective heroes. You never hear of Meshach or Abednego All through the story, it's always the three men, Meshach, um, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They're simply a trio of Jews who don't bow down. And so when they finally speak, we need to listen because the storyteller in Daniel 3 uses their speech to form the heart of the story. They say, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, we will not serve your gods 
or worship the image of gold you have set up. We're not going to bow down to that, that silly statue, no matter what, no matter how, no way. Even if our God doesn't deliver us. Even if. Now, some people get a little bit uncomfortable, actually, at the suggestion that these faithful guys didn't have as much faith as we'd like to think, even if God doesn't deliver us. But um, let me ask you, where were they in exile? Why were they there? Because God hadn't delivered them from Nebuchadnezzar. And so the uncertainty of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego about God's ability to deliver them actually makes their commitment to be faithful even more astounding. Even if our God doesn't deliver us, we will still worship him and him alone. We'll keep those first two commandments, come hell or fiery furnace or high water. And no wonder the king was impressed. It was, it was good of Bruce to remind us of our commandments this morning. If you're rusty, the first two are, you have no other gods before me and you shall, make, you shall not make graven images and worship them. Their convictions were not for sale, not at any price, not even their own lives. Amazing examples of faith. They hoped for a miracle, but they didn't demand one. They left everything in the hands of God. I want you to consider that little phrase, but even if. But even if he doesn't, we'll still worship him. If God says no to your cherished hopes and your fondest dreams, will you still trust him? If God says no to your plans for the future, will you still serve him? If God says no when through your tears you pray for the people that you love, will you still follow him? I mean, people leave churches for this stuff or, or go around embittered against God because they think, what's God given me? I've prayed about this for so long. He doesn't hear my prayers. Brings us face to face with a doctrine we don't talk about very much, actually. It's called the doctrine of the unpredictability of God. It means God does what he wants to do, not what we want him to do or what we try and manipulate him to do. So these three young men, they had a big God and they knew that their personal deliverance might not have been the most important thing to him. Yeah, that's a key insight for most of us because when we get into a tight place, all we can think about is just praying that we can get out of it. And so we pray, God, please get me out of this. Sometimes we say, if it's your will, please get me out of this. But that first bit we say very quietly because secretly we hope his will is our will. But you know, it's, it's, often it's not. We see through a glass darkly. At best, we just see a glimmer of God's purposes. It's like peeking through a pinhole, but he sees the whole panorama of history laid out before him. There are many mysteries in life. Deuteronomy 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, which means he knows why everything happens, but he's not telling us, not telling anyone else. And consider these mysteries. In Acts 12, the Apostle James is killed by a sword but the Apostle Peter is miraculously delivered. And why is that? 
Or when Hezekiah asks for 15 years more of life, he gets that. But Rachel dies on her way to Jerusalem, to Bethlehem. Why is that? One child does well and another struggles all her life. Why is that? One family knows prosperity and seems to have it all and have it made and another struggles to make ends meet. Why? Your friend's promoted but you're passed over when you do better work. Why? One man dies while working out while a little girl gets hit by a car but just bounces back up with nothing but a couple of bruises. Why? One child's born healthy, another child's born with developmental issues, serious ones. Why? Some prayers are answered and others are apparently never answered. Why? You could extend that list to infinity, but there's only one answer. He's God and we're not. And so in Psalm 115, the psalmist says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. And so what we find in Daniel 3 is faith in God, not faith in God's deliverance. These men have faith in God, not faith in God's deliverance. We can base our future on God's promises and know for certain God will take care of us, but we can't demand God to do what we think would be good for us can't tame God that way. I don't think we'd want to tame predictable God anyway. These young men are saying, we're sure of God. We're sure of God. We're just not sure what God will do. There's no prosperity theology here for these men. Faith means trusting God and his word. It means a ready willingness to follow him, whatever his purpose. And you can't make the sacrifices of faith without kind of getting that. Well, counting to, uh, to ten is not Nebuchadnezzar's skill set. The crazy king leaped to his feet in amazement and he asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they don't have to think twice. I mean, they'd say yes to anything he said at this point because he's so furious. Uh, Certainly, your majesty. The king rubs his eyes, <laughs> he checks his fingers and then he makes a statement. It's got all kinds of wrong about it. There are four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and if that's not enough, the fourth man looks like a son of the gods. Remember the king's challenge to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego before they made their famous declaration? He said, Then what God will be able to save you from my hand? As if he, Nebuchadnezzar, was greater than any god. And now, by the end of the chapter, he's finally met a God who is most definitely greater than he. Imagine that. And I want to say, the weight of this event is highlighted when we remember there's actually there's an economy of, of miracles in the Bible, of the miraculous. Miracles seem to be limited to um, relatively brief periods of biblical history. So there's Moses in the days of Exodus, Elisha and Elijah and the establishment of the prophets, Daniel in the exile, um, Jesus in the days of the apostles. 
And God's miracles are absent across centuries and centuries of biblical history. And these periods of the miraculous, actually, they all have um, features in common. They were days of special crisis for the kingdom of God and special pressure on the people of God. And in each period, the miraculous was an inbreaking of the future kingdom of God to vindicate God's message and God's servants. And so the paradigm miracle is who? It's Jesus and his resurrection. Because there the kingdom of darkness seemed to overcome the kingdom of God. But God raised his son from the dead in power and glory and his kingdom was protected and his servant was vindicated. And in the same way, when all seems lost for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, God vindicates them and their message, giving them new life in the face of certain death. In Isaiah, God gave a promise to his people in exile. If I can work it. A special promise to the people destined for exile. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I've summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they'll not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. And the flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. The only remarkable way that promise in Isaiah was given fulfilment that day in the fire. These men held on to the assurance that either in life or death, the Lord himself would be with them. Fear not, for I am with you. The reason? Because I love my people. But there's more to the story than that. If I left it there, I'd be leaving a very incomplete picture. Because it sounds too easy. And God says, fear not, I'll be with you. I'll save you, I'll rescue you. Because living by faith is often very difficult. And it doesn't always end up the way we would like. Let me ask the question this way. Does living by faith always mean you'll receive a miracle? The answer has to be no. The end of Hebrews 11 makes that very clear. So this is, this is Hebrews 11 verse 33, speaking about the triumphs of faith. People, men and women, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised. Here's our boy, Daniel, and his friends. Who shut the mouths of lion, lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received their dead back to life again. It's a wonderful list. We can all think of biblical heroes who did these things. But it's only part of the story, because the next verse says this. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they may gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned and they were sawed in two and they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains 
and in caves and holes in the ground. I mean, who are these people? What have they done to deserve that kind of punishment? The writer simply calls them the others. But they're the others who live by faith. Men and women who endured such torment, who were living by faith just as much as as Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Their faith wasn't weaker. If anything, it's stronger because they were able to endure incredible suffering. And I want to say, miracles come in many varieties. Some are outward and spectacular. Some are inward as God gives strength to his children as they suffer for him. And who's to say which is greater? Some are outward and spectacular, and some are inward as God gives strength to those who suffer for him. And who's to say which is greater? This week I I read a story uh, of a a monk called Telemachus. You might have heard it before. it makes its way to Christian radio from time to time um, or into a sermon. T- T- Tony Campolo has used it and Ronald Reagan used it actually at a national prayer breakfast. But it's a true story of a monk who lived during the er- early part of the 5th century. And uh, he was tending his garden at the monastery one day but he felt God calling him to Rome. He didn't know why um, but in the end he thought, well, I should, I should go along. I hadn't been to Rome before. He made the long journey. He set out across... Asia Minor and caught a boat to Rome and when he got there the city was in the middle of a big celebration the Romans had just beaten the Goths and he saw crowds moving to the Colosseum and he followed them and he thought maybe this is why God's brought me here and um, when he he got there it turned out the crowds were there for a big gladiator contest Um, so men would fight against men until you know there was one man left standing and then the wild animals would come out and they'd kind of play with the bodies, it was violent, it was bloodthirsty and the crowds had come to watch the action and the gladiators would march in and say we who are about to die salute you to the emperor and all that sort of thing. Telemachus had never seen anything like it but he knew he couldn't keep silence while men killed each other for entertainment and so he ran to the perimeter of the arena and cried out in a loud voice in the name of Christ stop! The crowd ignored him I mean, it's one voice among thousands. In the name of Christ, stop! And then the crowd began to cheer, thinking he was sort of part of the entertainment. Kill him! Kill him! Kill him! And a gladiator took his sword and struck Telemachus on the chest. And immediately the, the, the sand in the arena just went sandy red because of his blood. And the man dropped to the ground and said, In the name of Christ, Stop! For that monk, living by faith in the end meant dying by faith. But he made a difference in the world because a strange thing happened. A hush fell over the arena and all eyes were focused on his body in the sand and the gladiators put down their swords and one by one the spectators left and emptied the Colosseum. And historians tell us that that was the last gladiatorial contest in the Roman Colosseum. And never again did men kill men for entertainment in the arena. And when Telemachus died, those contests died with him. 
You think about that story for a moment. Was he a man of faith? Yes. Did he obey God? Yes. Did he have his doubts? Yes. Did he make a difference in the world? Yes. And the strength to live and die for Christ is as much a miracle as being delivered from the fiery furnace. And that's what took Nebuchadnezzar's breath away as he watched. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Let me pray. Father, um, to be a Christian by definition is to claim that Jesus is the only way and that's unpopular in our world and to borrow an expression from uh, Daniel, such handwriting on the wall can dishearten, frustrate, scares us Uh, but we know Jesus said it shouldn't. We know that he said hatred and mistreatment and even persecution for following him is all in the line of duty. And so may he give us the grace to say and to live, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Amen.